the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to this special edition of Highly Concentrated Hugh with Dan Senor about his book, The Genius of Israel, and about Israel on 10-6 and Israel after 10-7. In the course of this, we'll talk about a lot of things that will reference history. If you have been a Hillsdale.edu fan, if you've been visiting Hugh for Hillsdale.com, you'll know a lot of this history. But we are purposely approaching this broadcast with the student in mind or the adult who doesn't know much about why Israel is where it is and when it got started, 1,300 years before the birth of Christ, to be specific. But we're going to talk about that today. But if you want to know everything about Israel and everything about how the British ran the mandate and indeed everything about the modern 20th century that gave birth to the state of Israel, visit hugh4hillsdale.com. And while you're at it, support Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, one of the last places in America where a serious education is available. The applications are piling up already for next year. So go and get one and apply early. Check out and watch all of their video courses at hughforhillsdale.com. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Please stay tuned for this entire special broadcast. It has been 40 days since... Hamas invaded Israel on October 7th, murdered 1,200 and more than 1,200 Israelis and many people from other nations. They kidnapped 240 people. They wounded 5,500 more. But indeed, all of the 9.8 million Israelis have been wounded, as have been Jews worldwide. And one of the voices of sanity who've helped me get an understanding of this and lead me through it is my guest, Dan Senor. Dan is the author of this brand new book, The Genius of Israel, which had actually arrived in my home before 10-7. I had begun it. I was looking forward to talking to Dan or his co-author, Saul Singer, about it. But now it's become indispensable, as has Dan's podcast. Call me back. Good morning, Dan Senor. I wish it was a better circumstance under which to talk to you, but but The Genius of Israel is a magnificent book, and I'm glad to have you on in person. Hugh, thank you so much. You have been covering the hell out of this post-October 7th world for Israel. And I and I, I choose that word hell carefully because it has been a hell for anyone who is involved in Israel, cares about Israel, knows about Israel, or anyone who's just on the side of forces of civilization against the forces of barbarism. So it's been a hell. But um, I, I got to say, I'm not, a lot of, a lot of, Journalists have been covering this in a very superficial way, and I'm just grateful for the the level of attention and care and detail you've you've applied to it. It's it's a complicated issue. Well, Dan, thank you. Genius of Israel helped me get an understanding, and your conversations on Call Me Back are absolutely indispensable. And you find superstars that I've never met before. I just had on Dr. Orr, and he comes on like once a week, and I know Michael. But I'd never heard of Aviv Redigur, and now I, I read everything he writes or says and speaks. And I don't think I agree with him politically, but I don't I don't really care. He knows Israel. And I thought we would use this uh, broadcast, which will turn into a podcast to benefit people who are just ignorant, not stupid, just ignorant. And I want to begin with you by going back 4000 years. 
Jews have been in their land since what? 1300 BC. Is that about right, Dan? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Wow. We're, we're going far back. Yep. And then Moses, uh, that's when Moses comes in and they stay there with many wars and many disasters until 70 AD when the Romans get mad at the Jews and they destroy the second temple and the diaspora occurs. And nobody with a brain disputes this history, right? 70 AD, the Jews get dispersed around the world. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And no one, most people do not dispute, just to underline the point that the Jews were in what is that land, that, that in Jerusalem and surrounding areas in mo- what is now modern-day Israel. Prior On one of my two trips to Israel, I went into the tunnels next to the remnants of the temple, and those blocks have been there forever. And if people go to Israel and they yep. go into the tunnels, they can't deny the reality that Israel's been there since, well, 4,000 years. Now, tell us about Zionism and assume that the audience just doesn't know anything, because I think a lot of Americans are ignorant of basic facts about the Middle East. Tell us about the Zionist movement and the founding of the state of Israel, the regathering into Israel of the Jewish people. Well, uh, the the architect, the author of Zionism as a as a as an idea and as a movement in its modern uh, incarnation was a man by the name of Theodore Herzl, one of my heroes, who was lived in Vienna. He was a journalist in Austria, uh, secular, very secular Jew. Uh, had no real identity religiously with his Judaism or certainly politically with with uh, the state of Israel, the biblical the biblical origins of Israel, just wasn't particularly interested in it. And he was a journalist in Austria. He gets assigned to go to is in the you know late eighteen hundreds, mid to late eighteen hundreds. He gets assigned to go cover a for his newspaper. He gets assigned to go cover a trial in Paris. Uh, of a of a military officer, a French military officer, who is falsely accused of treason, and he's Jewish, and he goes to cover this trial. And Dreyfus, the the the, the military officer, the French military officer's name is Dreyfus, so it was later called the Dreyfus affair. And Dreyfus was falsely accused of treason, and it was clearly an anti-Semitic trial. It was clearly a, he was framed because he was Jewish. And Herzl goes to cover this, not looking for a, a Jewish angle on it. He's just covering the story. And again, keep in mind, I, I, he himself, Herzl, has no real connection to Judaism. And he's there and he's like, this is a total fraud. What's happening to this man? And he realizes it's happening because he's Jewish. And it's sort of a wake-up call, an inflection point for Herzl, where he says – the Jews have no real rights in many of these quote unquote enlightened places. And he, I mean, I'm, I'm really now going to short circuit the history. We can go as deep as you want, but he goes back to Austria and the Dreyfus affair combined with some other events like it, wake him up to the fact that the Jews are always going to be guests of other countries and other governments, wherever they live. There's been a history of antisemitism throughout history Everywhere in the world, I often tell people, give yourself the century test, which is to say, go on Google, type the word in anti-Semitism and type in a century. It could be the 20th century, the 19th century, the 10th century. Pick a century. In every century, you will find major waves of sometimes incredibly barbaric, 
uh, anti-Semitic periods somewhere in the world. And so the Dreyfus affair was was Herzl's wake up call that this is this is a real problem and this is a consistent problem. And so he basically says the Jews are not really going to ever be able to have continuity if they do not have a state of their own. And he launches a movement formally in the late 1800s that uh, was the Zionist movement, which is was focused on working with Jewish leaders from around the world on how to how to return to Israel and build a modern state. Western style, his vision for it was a Western, modern, flourishing economically, for flourishing culturally, flourishing politically state where the Jews, it's not to say Jews wouldn't live elsewhere in the world, but there would always be a Jewish state that they could call their own. And that and that the first meeting of the Zionist movement was in Basel, Switzerland in 1898. And a couple hundred leaders, Jewish leaders from around the world gathered in Basel. Now, by the way, imagine this. I just want to, I was just in Vienna last summer with my family and we were studying a lot about Herzl. I was with these two guys who are making a, a TV series, two Austri- uh, Austrian guys making a TV series about Herzl. Just imagine late 1800s, a crazy journalist from Vienna says, I'm going to, I'm going to launch a movement to build a Jewish state. And he gathers all these Jewish leaders and says, we're all going to meet in Basel, Switzerland. Now this is not where people are flying with planes and, you know, it's like the, the, the mechanics and logistics of people gathering in Basel, Switzerland from all over the world to have this meeting about founding a Jewish state. It was, it was not easy. And everyone kind of, a lot of people thought he was crazy. And that gave birth to the movement that, if we were to fast forward in 1948 resulted in the, the Jewish state being founded. Now, interestingly, he wrote at the time, he wrote several books, but in one of his books, which he wrote about his vision for the new state, he said it could take a few years. I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he said it could take five years. It could take 50 years, but there will be a Jewish state. There will be a state of Israel. He wrote that in exactly 50 years after he wrote that, the state of Israel was founded. In between him writing that, Herzl writing that, and the founding of the state, there were two world wars. The Second World War, as you know, resulted in wiping out basically a third of the Jewish people. It was a, it was a, a very um, deliberate attempt at genocide of, of, of elimination of the Jewish people. And that clearly accelerated in a sense. I mean, some argue it, it, it stymied the effort to get, the, uh, get a Jewish state established. But for all intents and purposes, after World War II, the world definitely, most parts of the world said, okay, that's it. The Jews do need a state of their own. When and we come back from break, uh, we're going to pick up before 1948, because I really don't want people to have an excuse of ignorance. If they listen to this show and this podcast, they're going to find out how we ended up at 10.6 and 10.7. By the way, for those of you who want to know about the Dreyfus Affair, there's a fabulous novel by Robert Harris. And it's a novel, so you don't have to get into the, to the dry history of it. It's a novel by Robert Harris called An Officer and a Spy. And if you want to know why it was so anti-Semitic and what it's about, that's the way to learn about the Dreyfus Affair. It's not the way to learn about Zionism. I'm going to do that with Dan coming forward. But it took 50 years to go from the awakening of Herzl to the state of Israel. I'm going to cover that during the break. And what was going on in the land of Israel, also known as Palestine, during those years between uh, the diaspora in 70 AD and the founding of the state in 1848. Stay tuned. 
I'm back with Dan Senor, and we're covering some old history very quickly. After the Jews were dispersed by the Romans, the place was pretty much empty. Early Christianity took up residence in the desert, but till Islam arose in the 7th century, and it conquered the area. And for many hundreds of years, Islam ruled the area. There was a crusader period of about 200 years, about 1,000 to 1,200. They fought back and forth about who controlled Jerusalem and the land. Islam eventually won. The Ottomans arrive in about 1500, and they take control of Palestine. The Turks take control of Palestine, and they rue it from afar, at, right up to World War I, Dan, right? World War I is where yeah. things start to happen, and we got about three minutes till we come back from break. What happens after World War I in the Middle East? Well, towards the end of the World War I, it was clear that uh, that the Western powers were going to win World War One, and so some of the Western powers were trying to figure out what to do with a bunch of these territories that had been uh, part of other countries' colonial powers. In this particular case, the Turks. So the French and the British uh, meet uh, in the Middle East. Uh, Sykes Picot. Picot is the is the French diplomat, and and Sykes is the British diplomat, and they. Both have some presence, and that at that time was Palestine under the rule of the the, the Turks, the Ottoman period, the the Ottoman part of the Ottoman Empire. They meet up in what is now northern Israel, and they basically said, "Okay, uh, is this this territory is going to be broken off from the Turkish Empire because the Turkish Empire is about to collapse at the end of World War One, and we got to figure out what we're doing with this piece of land and a bunch of others, and th- that particular piece of land, which was, you know." prior to the state of Israel's founding, obviously well before it, uh, is is agreed would be under British occupation. So it'll become part of the British Empire. It'll effectively translate from the Turkish Empire to the British Empire. So from the end of World War I until, we'll get into it, 1948, the British are in control of what they called at the time Palestine, which was the which was pre-state Israel. And um and the British were it was like it was the it was like a colon, they had a colonial presence there the way they had a colonial presence in India and other parts of the world it was just another piece of land in the broader global British Empire it was called the British Mandate and there were Jews yeah. there and there were Arabs there and there were other people there but mm-hmm. the Brits ruled it and the Brits ran the Mandate but all along Britain had committed to a Jewish state they did that during World War One with something called the Balfour Declaration. So the West committed to the Herzl vision of restoring the state of Israel during World War One, and it happened during World War Two. But in between, the Brits ruled that, and the Germans tried to get there, right? The Nazis tried to get there, but they didn't. And a guy named the Mufti went and threw in with, with Hitler, and thank God he didn't yeah. win, but... They were on the side of the Nazis and the Brits were on the and the Jews were on the side of the Brits. But it wasn't a lot of Jews. right? I don't have the numbers in front of me. I just want people to know the land was contested by many. people. This is very important. This is very important. So the Mufti of Jerusalem was was the Palestinian, what we'd call a Palestinian Arab Muslim religious leader. And it is true. He he there are there are images of him meeting with senior Nazi officials. Uh, So he, he he went all in with the Third Reich. And there was Jewish presence all during that time. And Balfour, who who issued the Balfour Declaration, which recently celebrated uh, its hundred year anniversary, is one of the most important documents in in 
Zionist history. If you want to really study Zionist history, this is Google the Balfour, B-A-L-F-O-U-R, the Balfour Declaration, because what it makes clear is in that declaration that the British, even when they were ruling that land, they said the Jews have always had a presence here. And stand right there, Dan. We got to come right back. Stay right there. Welcome back, America. Believe me, I'm going to get to The Genius of Israel, the book that you need to buy and read. The Genius of Israel is in bookstores now. The Genius of Israel is a magnificent book, and we're going to get there. I'm going to talk to Dan for the rest of this hour, but I'm trying to make sure that the ignorant out there have no excuse for their ignorance. The Balfour Declaration is important. Why, Dan? Because it was the the British, uh, it was Balfour was a British diplomat who issued this declaration I encourage your listeners to Google it. It's an important document in in Zionist history because it establishes the British are ruling. This is now post-World War I. The British are ruling pre-state Israel, and the British say, even though we're in charge here, we're ruling this place. We're effectively occupying this land. The Jews have always been here, and the Jews will always be here, and there will always be a Jewish presence here, and there should be. And so it laid the groundwork, the predicate for what became the Jewish state. And in years later and decades later, when there were these debates about the founding of the state, the Balfour Declaration was referred to. It was very rare for a senior official in the British Empire to talk about the territory that the British were occupying as part of their empire, to talk about it and define it in terms of being inhabited by other people and that it will always be inhabited by other people. In this sense, Israel was sort of an exception with how the British or pre-state Israel, with how the British viewed territory within their empire, which was acknowledging that there was this continuity of Jewish life in Israel. And there were Jews in Israel at the time, and there were always Jews. There was always a remnant. There were Jews in Iraq. There were Jews in the Pale of Russia. There were Jews in Britain. And wherever there were Jews, there were pogroms, or they got thrown out. They got thrown out of England. They got thrown out of Spain. They got thrown out of various places. They lived in ghettos. But the Pale of Russia and in Poland is where most of the European Jewry settled and when Hitler comes to power in 1933, nobody had read his book. Nobody took him seriously. He set out to destroy Jewry. And out of the nine million, I believe these are rough numbers, nine million European Jews, he killed all but 1.5 million of them. And of those he sent to the camp, only about a quarter million survived. And they joined up with the other million or so Jews who had survived. And they began to move, some to the United States, some had moved to the United States before that, but a lot of them went to Israel. And Britain wasn't real happy about that, right, Dan, during the mandate. They did not want no, the Jews. No, no, and they went to extraordinary efforts to limit Jewish uh, migration uh, into Israel. So there were fits and starts. Sometimes the British were more supportive of Jewish presence, expanding Jewish presence. Sometimes they weren't, but they by and large tried to limit Jewish presence. And I want to come back to something you just said, which I think is extremely important. Jews were all over the world, as you said, there was a massive Jewish presence in Iraq. There was a massive Jewish presence in Iran, in Yemen, in Egypt, in Morocco, all throughout Eastern and Western Europe, uh, obviously all through Russia and the former Soviet republics. In the, the one consistent through line in almost all of these places, not all, but I would say the overwhelming majority is the Jews were chased out of these places. So, so in the early 50s, soon after the State of Israel was founded. There was there was real a campaign of pogroms against the Jews of Iraq. Same thing with the Jews of Iran. Obviously, we know what happened to the Jews of Eastern Europe. So there was this sense that no matter where Jews were, they were not at home. They were always 
on the run. And I think this will, this is an important point to keep in mind when we get to the later stages in the history, because when people say Jews leave, Jews go home, Jews get out of here, go where? In other words, wherever they've been, they've been told to leave. When they were in Europe and North Africa, they were chased out and told to leave. Then they're in Israel. And even before Israel was recognized as a former modern state, you listen even today, the Hamas and these other groups that are at war with, with the Jews, they say, Jews get out, Jews leave. Go where? Everywhere And, and you used go, a word. We're, we're uh, not welcome. I want to make sure people understand what a pogrom is. It's a word that's been used a lot. But I will bet you that at three quarters of American high school students do not know what a pogrom is. And when you hear about yeah. Cossacks with cell phones, I believe I heard that on your show. Cossacks were the arm of the czar. And when I don't know why they would conduct pogroms. They're the most famous ones. But they would basically just go on, on a Jew hunt, right? They would just go kill Jews. Yeah. Basically, it's a it's a sometimes uh, premeditated, sometimes organic, violent outbursts of and, and sometimes a sustained campaign against Jews, slaughtering of Jews, humiliating Jews, beating Jews, torturing Jews, destroying Jewish property. Uh, this this is what a pogrom is. Uh, some countries they were like in Russia and other areas in the former Soviet Union, Ukraine, uh, pogroms were uh, much more. Persistent, but uh, yes, that's what a that's what a pogrom. And is. so, when when we come back, and, and, and Hugh, and Hugh, the reason, and Hugh, the reason we hear the term pogrom today so much, and the reason I use the term pogrom so much in my commentary these days, is because it's the first time I've been hearing about pogroms my whole life, and I've been studying, I've studied them as a student of Jewish history. I've never thought I would actually see pogroms in my life and that we will get to this, I'm sure. But we're, what that's what's scary for a lot of Jews today is in the West, we're starting to see post-October 7th pogroms and uh, or, or things that look eerily similar to pogroms. And so that they, and, they, and, they, and that they is scary. It is. We come back from break. During our break, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism in the United States, and then we're going to get to the genius of Israel. But I want to remind everyone I'm doing this because. You've got to get this book, The Genius of Israel, because it's about why Israel will not go away, why it is the most resilient nation in the world, the equal of the United States, maybe even better than the United States, for reasons unique to Israel that I'm going to cover with Dan. So don't go anywhere. we got a lot of time. This is a long podcast and a long broadcast, but it's important for you to get the history of Israel and why it will endure, even in the face of the pogrom of 10-7 and... The anti-Semitism in the United States. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is one of those segments that's not on the radio show that will be in the podcast. So, Dan, before we talk about anything in the book, I want to make sure that's mostly in that. Would you explain for people who are intrigued? I've read Paul Johnson's The History of the Jews. I read The Redemption of the Unwanted. I read Amos Oz when I was you know, in college, and I thought... Amos Oz was one of the best writers I've ever read. I doubt I agree with him politically. But if someone is out there and they really don't know anything about Israel, what ought they to read to get smart about why this is just another chapter in in the amazing epic history of the Jews? So I think Paul Johnson is fabulous. The uh, history of the Jews. I we, we actually quote him. We'll quote from a conversation he had with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Lord Sachs, who's a former chief rabbi of the UK, which we can get into uh, Paul Johnson's big takeaway from his studying the, the history of the Jewish people. I think Johnson is fabulous. His book is fabulous. He 
it's a tough read, though. So it's more of the kind of book, I think, for a lot of people that would dip in and out. But if you want a comprehensive history, that's I, I highly recommend it. Um, for a history of modern state of Israel, Daniel Gordis, uh, his book is called Israel, uh, a history. I think that's the subtitle. Um, I can look it up, but it's called uh, it's just called but Gordis, G-O-R-D-I-S, Daniel Gordis. And his more recent book, which just came out time to the 75th anniversary of the founding of the state is also very good history. Uh, it's called, it's more about the history of the founding of the state. It's called impossible takes longer. Uh-huh. And so I highly recommend that. And then one other book, you, you got me going, I can go on this all day long. So I'll be, I'll, I'll be efficient here. A, a, a good primer is by uh, Dennis Prager and Joseph Delushkin, a book they wrote, I think almost 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago uh, called why the Jews. And it's about why anti-Semitism, a history of anti-Semitism. It's a short, quick read. If you want like a quick read about why the persistence of anti-Semitism, why is it the oldest hatred? Why has it been around us forever? It's called Why the Jews, Dennis Prager and Joseph Telushkin. We can put you know, uh, Dan, Dennis and I invented a program called Ask a Jew. And we would go around in Southern California and the country with Dennis and me. And and I I say, I'm Bill Shoemaker and he's secretariat. Dennis just knows everything. And we'd have crowds of a thousand people and it'd be roughly a third evangelicals, a third Catholic and a third Jews. And I would just ask questions. Why are Jews funny? Things like that. And Dennis knows everything. But I'm I don't think he approaches it the same way that you do. They're very two different ways. Dennis approaches it with an assumption that are a lot of facts, not in evidence and I've heard you on your podcast. You're very careful not to assume your listener knows anything. That's a very valuable right. skill, right? And I don't know. Uh, we got a minute till we go back live. What do you listen to other than your own podcast to stay sharp? With I listen to the Times of Israel every day, their daily update on the war. But what do you listen to in terms of podcast, Dan Senor? Oh, wow. Uh, there's a lot. I'm a, I'm a huge podcast listener. So look, I will say the Times of Israel update is very good. It's quick, 15, 20 minutes if you just want kind of a rundown of the daily news. Daniel Gordis's podcast, I mentioned him, uh, called Inside Israel. Uh, he also has a Substack, but his podcast Inside Israel is very good. He takes all his guests are Israeli. He has one Israeli guest every week. I haven't always agreed with Daniel Gordis. I think he was... Um, I, I diverged with him on on the implications of the judicial reform debate in 2023, but he's, but he's, um, I, I think, but he's a very serious thinker and he's a friend and I and I think he's intellectually serious. Um, what else? I think. Well, hold on. We, we got to come back to the radio show, so we'll come back and I'll ask you more about that in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. We have a long segment coming up with Dan Senor. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dan Senor, S-E-N-O-R, along with Saul Singer, have written this book, The Genius of Israel, which came out, I'll say, at the high watermark of Israeli optimism, which was 10-6. You know, it came, it literally came out the week, uh, I got my copy the week before the catastrophe, the Holocaust, the second Holocaust. And there is in there a line, Dan, and Moses grew and went out to his brothers and saw their suffering. That's all of Israel at this moment, and indeed all of Jewry worldwide and the friends of the Jews. And I'm curious, would you explain that phrase and what Moses grew means? Because I think it's relevant to the rest of our conversation. Well, it's this idea that uh, Moses recognized, uh, was commanded and uh, by, by God and recognized um, the challenges the Jewish people would face in in history in in history up to then and in history going forward and they had to march on they had to march on to the promised land they had to they had to get to um obviously ultimately get out of egypt and get to the promised land and free themselves of slavery and um live free what we would say today democratic flourishing lives as a people So in the course of this history that we've covered, there comes an event we've only touched on briefly, the Holocaust. So Zionism predates the Holocaust. The World Wars come. The Balfour Declaration is there. The Brits get the mandate, but the Holocaust occurs. And six million Jews are killed. A million and a half live. 250 to 300,000 survive the camps. There's a kind of plant, Dan, I'm not sure you're familiar with, pyrophytic plants. I, I was a lawyer in endangered species for a lot of years, and I knew about pyrophytic plants. They only arise after a scorching, terrible fire. They rest and they need fire to grow. And it seems to me that the impact of the Holocaust on the nascent Zionism movement was profound. And I think the impact of 10-7 is going to be profound on the growth of Israel because there's still Holocaust survivors alive. In fact, one of them is in the tunnels. I pray she's alive with Hamas monsters right now. But in one respect, the the first Holocaust, the living survivors of that are moving away. The second Holocaust, 10-7, is going to shape the next Israel for the next 75 years. Do you think I'm right about that? Totally. I, I, uh, if, if I were to be asked, as I often am, how would you define this period, this war? Because I'm sometimes asked, isn't this just like Israel's been having skirmishes with Gaza and Hamas on and off since Israel left Gaza in 2005 and Hamas took over in 2007. Israel's been having every couple of years some kind of rockets get fired. Israel takes a military action in response. Then there's a ceasefire. Isn't this more of that? And I say, no, I, I actually say this, is, this will be remembered as the war that changed everything. I think this is a more consequential war than almost any war in Israel's history. Now, when I say this, people say going back to the Yom Kippur War, the 1973 war, which was which was also a big setback of a war. I say it's more consequential than the 1973 Yom Kippur War because the 1973 Yom Kippur War, Israel was completely caught off guard after this incredible, miraculous victory just a few years later in the 1967 Six-Day War. But in 73, Israel was completely caught off guard, surprised. You can – for those who it's, – it's actually pretty well captured in this new film with Helen Mirren called Golda, uh, how Israeli intelligence was caught off guard, Israel's political leadership was caught off guard. But what people don't tend to cover is that after the first two weeks of embarrassment and setback, 
which ultimately destroyed Golda Meir's political future and the rest of the leadership uh, at that time of the Labor Party in Israel, Israel bounced back. And Israel went on to win the war and defeated Egypt and defeated Syria and could have basically was encircling Damascus and Cairo and could have taken those cities if Israel wanted to. They ultimately didn't. And what Israel ultimately did in the comeback of that war is proved Egypt's military and Syria's army military to be paper tigers. And and so that was a huge win for Israel. And as bad as the casualties were dur- during the Yom Kippur War, they were mostly military casualties. And, the, and the battles in Israel were basically fought on sort of no man's land in parts of Israel. They weren't fought in real civilian areas and towns and cities. What was, to me, so monumentally distinctive about the October 7th War is A, there's a risk that Israel's military and intelligence capability, which over the last number of decades has been regarded in the region and around the world as a as a juggernaut, is put into question because how could this have happened? Now Israel looks like the paper tar- tiger. Bunch of ragtag militias, guys with you know pickup trucks and motorcycles storm in and cause all this damage. Now it turns out they were much more sophisticated than than they appear, but we can come back to that. And 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 so Israel was completely caught off guard. And two, and what was scariest to me as a Jew, and I know a number of Israelis feel this way, is the is the savagery, the slaughtering of civilians in southern Israel that went on for hours and hours where they took over 20, 22 communities in southern Israel. And Israel had never experienced that before. They'd never fought a, a, a war like that on their own territory with so many civilians being slaughtered tortured, kidnapped, taken hostage. This was a whole new level of insecurity felt by the Jewish people. As as one scholar put it to me, it was like for those 12 hours when the worst fighting was happening in southern Israel on October 7th, it was like the Jewish state didn't exist. All that Herzl fought for that you and I were talking about earlier, all the visionaries behind the building of the state, it was like all of that was washed away. That for those 12 hours, the Jewish people were back to not having a state and not having an army. And that was such a wake-up call for Israelis across the political spectrum. And I think for Jews around the world, Jews in the diaspora are really saying, this is a reminder of what, what it looks like when we don't have a state. Those 12 hours tell us what happens when the Jewish people don't have an army. And I, I think a lot of Jews today are having conversations about the centrality of the state of Israel and Zionism in Jewish life and how indispensable it is because we had a vision on October 7th of what the world looks like when we don't have it. You are, your guest, Haviv Rediger, who was on earlier this week, said uh, the world doesn't understand that the more pressure they put on us, the more we will become implacable. We are immovable. And I wrote that down and I put it out on Twitter because I don't believe a lot of Americans understand the iron resolve in the soul of Israelis and and Jewry around the world that this was different. And I know the 1948 war, the 1956 Suez operation, the 67 war, the 73 war. I know about the 82 Lebanon war, the second Lebanon war, the first and second intifada. I covered the second intifada daily because I've been on the air for 24 years. This is nothing like that. This was pre-civilization level savagery. It was Jew hatred. And I won't watch the 45-minute film, Dan. I don't know if you have the guts for it, but I've got 
baby grandchildren and I've got a four-year-old granddaughter and I cannot watch it. I've seen the faces of people who watch it in the Congress and the House of Lords yesterday saw it. And I, I already have trouble sleeping after 10-7. Have you watched it? Will you watch it? I haven't watched it. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of people who have watched it. I've encouraged a lot of people to watch it. Um, I I guess at some point I will watch it. I'm I'm um, obviously not looking forward to watching it. I uh, I know so many people who who have been directly affected by what happened on October seventh. Um, I've spent time with parents of hostages. I have, you know, my kids go to a Jewish day school, a Jewish religious school. Many of the faculty and parent body families there are Israeli. Uh, They have family members and friends who are directly affected. I know one woman whose um, family member was, uh, it's so awful to say, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, she, She opened up her Facebook on Saturday, October 7th, and she uh, saw her niece being raped live. She was at the music festival and the Hamas took her niece and they took her phone and they opened up her Facebook account and they live streamed, you know, did a Facebook live on her phone of them raping her so that they knew her family and friends would see it because they follow her. Um, I'm just giving you a sampling. I mean, uh, you know, every every day I, I hear some story about um, someone I know who has some connection to it or uh, it, it's 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 a little too real. Uh, it's not just a story I'm following. It's, it's um, I know too many people who are who've been living the horror. So then to watch the horror for me, I think would be hard. I will do it at some point. I. I more encourage people who don't have the direct connection to watch it because I think it it, it will help with their own education and illuminate the, the 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 depravity and the and the and the this is a sickening thing that happened. I mean, I not to digress here, Hugh, but in World War II, the Nazis tried to disguise the horrors of what they were doing. In many cases, what is so utterly shocking here is A, the nature of these horrors, and B, that they wanted, Hamas wanted it all documented, and they wanted it out broadcast to the world. And that, and, and, the, and the why behind that is a very important question for us to try to understand what they were trying to do with that. But they wanted broadcast to the world, and we should, you know, people should see it. People should understand what, what's happening. And you brought up Haviv Retikur, who is who I have on, as you know now, because I know you listen to the conversations. I have Aviva on my podcast every single day. We record every Sunday, and I drop it, crack it on Monday morning. We've been having an ongoing conversation since October 8th. I called him after October 7th, and I called him, and I, he's a friend, and I said, how you doing? I want to check in. I was calling all my Israeli friends, and he just started pouring out with a mix of soulfulness and raw emotion and deep analytical observations. It was a rare blend. And I said, Haviv, stop. We're recording this conversation. And he said, no, no, no. I said, trust me. Let's just record it. Let's have a conversation. If you hate it, we won't post it. And we ended up having a very long conversation, as you know. And I posted it, and it went viral. People, There was a real enormous appetite for his voice. And we agreed we were just going to have that conversation. It's almost like a journal for him every of this time. And every Sunday, we have a conversation. And the most recent episode, which you're referring to, I thought he made a this point that caught me off guard because I hadn't really considered it. So many in the 
in the West are saying, how long can Israel handle the blowback, the international blowback? How long can Israel handle the press scrutiny? How long can Israel handle, you know, cr- the criticisms? And and Haviv's attitude is bring it on because it's part of Hamas's strategy. Hamas wants to catalyze that blowback against Israel because it thinks it ultimately reigns in Israel. It removes Israel's options. And with with the with the blowback being turned to 11 on the volume dial, like if the if the blowback is at peak intensity and Israel still says, we don't care. We're still doing we're still going to defend our people. We're still going to defend our borders. Stand then right there. The strategy for Hamas wouldn't have worked. It happened yesterday. Justin Trudeau did it yesterday. Macron did it last week. And if you listen to Call Me Back or you've read The Genius of Israel, you know it doesn't matter. In fact, it increases the implacability and the resolve of the Israelis to get their people back and to destroy Hamas. And we'll talk about the second half of this show. The next 45 minutes is about the genius of Israel and why they are prepared to be resilient and rebound. Stay tuned, America. I'm Pete Hewitt. Welcome back. This is one of the off-air segments that's in the podcast. Uh, Dan Senor, can you explain, and my Hebrew is terrible, right? I mispronounce English all the time, so help me out. Machinat, or machina. It's a a quality. Machina, 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 yeah. Yeah, explain that to people, because when I was, you know, I bought your book and I listened to it, and I said, I can't ever spell that. I'm going to have to have Senor explain that to people, because that was a revelation. So I will say, Hugh, I got to tell you, we, we use a number of Hebrew words in this book. As you know, there's kibush, there's chevra, there's mechina. There's there's a lot of Hebrew words we use, which I'm happy to talk about all of them. Readers love these words. People who aren't Jewish, they love learning about these yes. words. It's quite interesting to me. Yeah, I know people are like really into it. Um, so mechina is a program that was really just established in the last decade or decade and a half, which is, as you know, Israelis – most Israelis serve in compulsory military service, age 18, 19, 20, 21. And, you know, males for three years, females for two years, unless they go on into officer training uh, school or they or they serve in one of the elite units, which has a longer time commitment. But otherwise, it's just the two to three year period. Uh, you can do a, it's the equivalent of a gap year, which is between high school and serving the military. So you delay your military service by a year. That's one place you can have a Mechina program or you can do a Mechina program right after your military service. But what it is, is is there's different forms of it, different programs, but it's basically you're with something like 40 to 50 Israelis of your age group from all across Israeli life, religious life, secular to Orthodox, political life, right to left, people from the, you know, very urban areas of Tel Aviv to the struggling towns and the periphery. It's people from all walks of life. They mix them up in these programs. You're with them for a year and you study. You do. You study. You study religious texts. You study historical texts. You study study modern political texts. You study literature. It's to have all these people who have different viewpoints and different perspectives studying together uh, ideas and 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 um, works of literature that deal with Jewish life in biblical times and modern times. And then you also you live together in d- different parts of the country, and you also do community work. So you volunteer in struggling communities, uh, working with youth who are at risk. Uh, and so it's, it's a combination of, of um, sort of a form of service, communal service, and studying with people who are a mix of, of the tapestry of Israeli life. 
And um, it's becoming increasingly popular. It's sort of a leadership training program, a civilian leadership training program. And again, you can do it pre pre army service or post army service. And the reason it matters, I'm trying to figure out the building blocks of recovery, because I think everyone in Israel is traumatized and there are many building blocks of recovery. The IDF is the most important one. I'll come to that on one of the on air. But the scouting is another one. We're going to come back afterwards. It seems to me that whether consciously or not, Israel has been preparing for this. Dan, do you think in the back of the mind they realized that there would be an existential moment and the country had to be able to come together despite the deep political divides in Israel? I think that Israel has built into its system, its social system, its its human infrastructure, uh, these these society, what we call societal shock absorbers or the building blocks of solidarity. And they come in many forms. They come in the form of mechinot, the mechinas that we're talking about. It comes in the form of how uh, young Jews have their extracurricular activities, which is the most popular extracurricular activity for Jews who are anywhere from like 10 years old to like 15, 16, 17, is the scouting movement. So scouts is a big deal in Israel. Stay stay right there. We're going to come back to scouts. Hold one second. We're going to stay on scouts and come back on the show. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. My guest is Dan Senor. His new book with Saul Singer is The Genius of Israel. And we're going to talk about it for the first half hour of next hour as well. I've been talking about these building blocks, these shock absorbers in Israel, and the scouting movement came up during the break. And so, Dan, please tell people about the scouting movement. I didn't know about this. I didn't know that the forests of Israel were taken over by fourth graders and 12th graders every summer. And I thought, wow, no wonder the IDF functions. No wonder the country is so resilient. Scouting, these scouting movements are not the Boy Scouts, but they're kind of the Boy Scouts. Yeah, it is. It is like the Scout uh, Boy Scouts. It's similar to that, except it's all run by the difference between the scouting. Move- we write about this, the difference between the scouting movement in Israel and the scouting movement anywhere else, uh, including the UK, I think, where it was founded, uh, is um, it's all run by the by the scouts. So young, older scouts are the leaders of the younger scouts. So you you. You start at 10, 11, 12, and by the time you're 15, 16, 17, you are the leaders of the scouts. So when an Israeli child starts school uh, in at that age, it could be, I think it's 8, 9, 10 years old, you get a note from like a 15 or 16-year-old or 17-year-old telling the parents, uh, hey, we're starting the scouting movement. Uh, basically, we'll pick up your kids after school. You don't have to worry about it. We're in charge. And so it does two things. One, again, like the army, like the mechina. It brings people from all walks of life together to be part of a communal experience. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is it is it is empowering to young people. The thing about Israel that I often try to get people to understand, young people in Israel are given more responsibility, Hugh, than anyone I know anywhere in the world. And we all the army obviously is the pinnacle of that, right, where you have 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are managing people, leading people responsible for – assets, military assets in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. In the in the scouting movement, you have teenagers, young teenagers who are responsible for the care of people's younger children in a very immersive, very comprehensive experience. They're not adult counselors. The, the kids are the counselors. And every stage in life, I, I'm always, you know, Eric Schmidt, who's the, you know, is the former CEO and executive chairman of Google. We interviewed him for our first book. And he said, this is when he was still at Google. He said, he told us if you take the average 25-year-old 
from Israel and you put him or her against up against any 25-year-old in the world, any day of the week, Google will hire the Israeli because at age 25, they've already had so much management and leadership experience compared to anyone else that you just don't, you just don't, they're, they're so equipped to tackle big things and they're not burdened by responsibility. They embrace it. And, um, and it's just, and, and so you, and you wonder why that happens, right? It's the military, as we said, and it's also all these other stages in life that, that have this role where, where Jews in Israel are given all this responsibility. In the course of the scouting and then repeated again and again and again, and I got to find my notes for another term that comes up that I just found amazing. You develop it at university, you develop it at school, you develop it in the scouting movement, you develop it at the IDF. There is this sense of camaraderie and it's not family. What's the term for it that I'm reaching for, Dan? I'm looking for it in my notes. Hevra, Ibush, Ibush. Hevra and Kabush. Hevra. You're Hevra, Hevra and Hevra. you're Kabush. Yeah, okay, Tell us great. about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Hevra is um Hevra is your is your group of friends. Um it's your it's your it's your it's your it's like your posse. It's your it, they're your pals that come from a very um they're not they're not superficial relationships. They're they're your Hevra could be from school your school life. Their Hevra usually is from the army, people who've served together in the army. Uh it could be Hevra as a group you may study with, religious, you know, do regular religious study with, but it's your it's your it's your the nucleus of your of your friendship circle. And you usually have your Hevra for life and you're with them for life. And it, these aren't competitive relationships. Uh these are these are people who are like your your brotherhood or your sisterhood. It's like they're almost like family. That's your Hevra. And they're lifelong relationships. Ibush is a is a sense of um it's a, it's like a verb for bonding. It's, um, it's, it's the experience. It's like, it's uh, you, a way to say it is, you know, I, I, uh, I went on a hike with my Hevra to have some kibush. Kibush is the act of bonding, the act of deep hanging out, deep connect, not, not superficial. Again, it's deep, deep, you know, connecting and, and, um, and bonding. And so they often Hevra and kibush go uh, together. Now kibush, we focus on kibush because of the way Israelis, study in school. So there's a big, what's very much in vogue now in the U S is this individualized learning, you know, meet the student where he is, you know, that's the, that's the, and it's all focused on the individual, individual student, individual excellence, personalized learning. And they tried that in Israel and it backfired because the uh, education leaders and the parents both said, but wait a minute, all this individualized learning, we're losing the kibush. We're lear- we're losing the sense of being part of something larger than yourself in the class. And isn't it more powerful if people are learning together and learning to live together and learn from one another and learning to advance together? And I will say, Hugh, one of the most important – I'm asked now since the book has come out, what can the United States learn from Israel, right? What is Israel is flourishing even though it's just had this major setback. It's flourishing and, and Israeli life is dynamic and – the U.S. is not flourishing, right? We have a real social crisis in the U.S. And what can we learn? And I say, and I say, the way young Jews think about themselves as something larger than their own individual excellence, which we can come back to. And it's not politics. It's important. Under it's not politics because politics make people into opponents and kibush make people into citizens. I'll be right back with Dan Sinor. We continue to talk about the genius of Israel and why it will it will bounce back, it will be stronger, and it will win, and it will destroy Hamas, and it will take a party of Iran if it needs to. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt.
I hope you're enjoying this special edition of Highly Concentrated Hugh with Dan Senor about his book, The Genius of Israel. I want you also to enjoy the course on Winston Churchill, who is largely responsible for the creation of the State of Israel. He drew the lines on the map after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after World War I. If you want to learn about that, head over to HughForHillsdale.com and look up the Hillsdale Dialogue series I did with Dr. Ryan just a couple of weeks ago on the birth of the modern Middle East. Everything Hillsdale was collected at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Now stay tuned and we'll go right back to my conversation with Dan Senor. I'm back now with Dan Senor, and I want to pick up on the kibush, but I want to pick up on something that has been happening this week, uh, Dan, in parallel to the March for Israel. I was very pleased to go to the March for Israel, but some friends, some new friends are here from England, and they're trying to build in the United States what they've built in England, something called the, the, the Forum Network, Network Forum. And a bunch of people just get together, and they try for what I will call sort of an Anglo version of kibush. And it takes a long time to build. And I was commenting to one of them that if they read your book on page 24, they would see in Israel, everyone, no matter how important, responds to anyone, even random cold email and WhatsApp messages. That's a culture of seeing people and responding to people. I don't know if I've seen that anywhere else in the world. Have you? No. Uh, and I think this is a big reason why Israel is the most important innovation ecosystem outside of uh, outside of Silicon Valley is the interconnectedness of the, of the networks in Israel. Everyone it's, it's not, it's the opposite of a caste system, right? It's the most anti-hierarchical system. By the way, the army is also very anti-hierarchical in Israel, but, but the tech ecosystem is even more anti-hierarchical. There is no royalty even the biggest tech stars in Israel who've made gobs of money, the versions of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Mark Andreessen or Tim Cook, they're not treated like royalty. Anybody can reach anybody. Everyone's expected to be responsive to a WhatsApp message that comes through. So a young, a young, a young person who's got an idea for a business can send a business plan to like Amnon Shashua, who's one of the major, most major, most accomplished, uh, most successful players in Israel in artificial intelligence and, auto, you know, the revolutionary, revolutionizing the automobile with the visualization technology that's in the automobile. He's, he's, he's been extraordinarily successful. He's a billionaire. If someone sends him a WhatsApp, I'm almost certain he'll respond. It's not to, he won't respond like he's hearing from a, a child of his or a friend, but he will respond as though he's hearing from a cousin, a cousin he doesn't hear from that much. And that's the culture in Israel. It's just everyone is, there's a sense that everyone's part of a big family. Yeah, I've been reading uh, throughout the last few months in parallel with this two books that matter. One is called The Pope at War, and it's an examination mm -hmm. of the new documents released by the Vatican about Pius XII and how he did not see the problem. He did not see, he could not feel the problem. He was worried about the Vatican. He was worried about the church, but it's kind of a revelation he did not see. And something called the Overstory, which won the Pulitzer for fiction, which is about trees. And I learned in there that every aspen in America is connected to every other aspen in America. It's one big system. The root system is just this giant system of roots connecting trees all over the United Israelis seem to be that way. They all seem to be connected. And it's not Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation. It's sort of you don't need any degrees of separation. Every Israeli kind of is mad at each other and kind of gets along all the time so that even during this 
I never comment on on internal politics. I don't know who's going to win Israeli politics. I don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do. But I watch it and I talk with Michael Oren about it because Israel's our ally and we need them vis-a-vis Iran. And I was I'm devastated by 10-7, but I'm also not worried. I think it will come back because everyone's pulling together. And are are you are you astonished as someone who is both in the United States where it's so deeply divided and it's not coming together and in Israel where it's deeply divided and it's coming together like this? Are you astonished by that? No, I'm not astonished by it in the in Israel. I mean, this is what our book is about. Our book is explaining why this country is so resilient. And our book is explaining what are the building blocks that holds the country together. And I, and I, and let me just say, I mean, we could, there's so many aspects of Israeli life we could focus on. Two in particular, we talked about national military service. So what does national military service do? As we said, as I talked about earlier, it trains these young Israelis with incredible skills in leadership and management, which sets them up to be players in the tech community, which is in the tech economy, which is great. Two, it brings Israelis together from all walks of life, and they serve together. And they serve together not only during their mandatory service, but also the reserves. reserves reserve duty goes into their 40s. So every year, many Israelis are back with their unit, back with these people from all walks of life into their 40s. And they're spending time in those moments, both in their compulsory service and then later on in their in their year in their reserves with people who may not look like them, may disagree with them politically, may have different levels of religious observance, may have come to Israel from different countries. It makes it harder and harder for Israelis to look at each other as the other. Right. Israel. I have Israeli friends who say, oh, I totally disagree with with Itzik, you know, and I we can we argue like crazy, say, on judicial reform. But we're in the hull of a tank together. And we're in the hull of a tank. We're brothers. So even when I disagree with him politically, I don't view him as the other. So that's one thing. Second thing is the role of ritual in Israeli society. You cannot overstate the role of ritual, that these rituals are are individual and they're collective. So there's in Israel, most Israelis observe Shabbat, the Sabbath, every Friday night. We have a chapter in the book, as you know, called Thanksgiving Every Week where most of the country, 70 to 80% of the country, shuts down on Friday night and spends time with family, two generations, three generations, four generations. Every Friday night, they get together. My sister who lives in Jerusalem, uh, she and Saul, who's the co-author of the book, they and my mother who lives in Jerusalem and their children, so that's three generations, are together every Friday night. And while you're having that experience, you know the whole country or most of the country is doing the same thing. And Again, it, there's a sense that I'm sharing in an experience, the way we share an experience on Thanksgiving with the rest of the country, but that's once a year. I yeah, that chapter the in, in The Genius of Israel is an eye-opener. I've been to Shabbat with uh, Dennis and Alan Estrin and Stephen Marmer and, their, and my spouse and their spouses, and it was a fabulous thing. And I've had Jewish friends since I was 18. Didn't know a Jew until I went to Harvard, right? Didn't know a Jew. I uh, just didn't know one. And then <laughs> immersed in, in Jewry at Harvard, and they're my lifelong friends. And I get the glimpse, but I never understood Shabbat until I read The Genius of Israel and how it makes Israel so strong. I read, I, I listened to Times of Israel podcast yesterday. The Cowboys who showed up on the West Bank to take care of the herds because everyone's on reserve duty, they had three invita- 300 invitations to Shabbat dinner. Isn't that wild? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so a friend of mine, Donna Stern, who I read about in the book, who's a TV producer, she she helped create Fauda and she created uh, Stitzel. She tells the story that she was a Reuters journalist for years in the Israel Bureau in uh, in Israel. And then she got st- every year she gets st- sent to London for two weeks 
And uh, she'd be in the bureau in London at Reuters. And she'd go to work every day. Everyone knew she wasn't from there. And she said, no one invited me for anything, for Shabbat dinner, for a meal, for nothing. It was this sort of cold, clinical sense of professional relationship with her. She says, in Israel, anyone who's here, friend, stranger, whatever, they're at, they're at someone's home for Shabbat dinner, like period, full stop. It's the most welcoming and embracing experience. We're coming right back. And now we're going to get to the tough stuff. 10-7, and what does the IDF do, and how are they going to do it? Don't go anywhere, America. The book is The Genius of Israel. You need to get it for yourself. You need to get it for your friends. You need to listen to Dan Senor's podcast, which, Dan, you got to do more often than you're doing. I know you're on a book tour, but I, I kind of live and breathe for Call Me Back, because you have a very interesting voice, by the way. You have a very interesting podcast. Don't go into my business, please. Stay away from my business. I don't I don't want you to be a talk show host. <laughs> You'll be too good at it. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with Dan Sino. Morning, Glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I've never done this before. I've been doing this show for 23 years. I've never spent this much time with an author. But Dan Senor is the author of The Genius of Israel. And his brand new book, along with Paul uh, Saul Singer, is must read. His podcast, Call Me Back, is a must listen to. And the reason I'm doing it is I think 10-7, like 9-11, is a dividing line. And either you understand it or you don't. And there's pre-10-7 and there's post-10-7 because barbarism is alive in the world. And it showed me that if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they'll use it against Israel even if they destroy the region. It showed me that there is no limit in the fanaticism of the Islamists, whether Sunni or Shia variety, not in Islam. I, I know a lot of Muslims who, who are just horrified by this, but boy, Israel has to deal with it differently. And that brings us to first, I want to talk about the babies, then I want to talk about the IDF, and I want to talk about what's next. First, the babies. Four is the new three. Israel has not got a demographic problem. This was news to me, Dan. This is a wonderful thing. My daughter has four kids. I'm so happy. You know, I, you know, I had three, but four is better. And I gather every Israeli believes that, right? Yeah. So this this was one of the first data points, Hugh, when Saul and I were, were researching the book that that hit us most starkly, which is that most of the world is going through a demographic collapse. Some countries are are worse off than others, but it's all heading directionally in the same place. If you are a wealthy, affluent democracy, your population is most likely on a track to aging, aging and shrinking. It's a dangerous combination to have an old population without enough young people coming up, A, to support them, and B, to continue to make the society, the culture, and the economy dynamic and entrepreneurial and innovative. There are extreme examples of this, like Japan, which is way far ahead. Uh, which, which is, which is, they, they have a. I mean, they talk to government officials in Japan. I was there last April. That's all they talk about. They're worried about the fact that schools are closing. You don't see any baby strollers on the streets. Uh, there's just a sense that they're they're aging, as they put it gracefully. But it's sort of de- it's a it's a depressing situation. And to give you one stat, Hugh, which we have in the book, which to me says it all, is in Japan today, and has been the case for the last few years. The market for adult diapers is larger than the market for baby diapers, okay? Now, many countries in Europe are not far, far behind, and I'm sad to say the U.S. is not far behind Europe. That is to say most of these countries are either below the replacement rate or hovering just around it. The replacement rate is the rate, the 2.1. Every woman needs to have, on average, 2.1 children for your population to continue to grow. If you are below the replacement rate, your country is going to shrink and you know shrivel away. If you're above the 2.1 rate, you're going to grow and expand and be dynamic. 
Israel is the only wealthy democracy that is well above the replacement rate. Israelis the only one. Three, four, and five children. Yeah, yeah. So Israel, Israel is some, the an iron law of demography is the more economically productive your country becomes, the wealthier it becomes, the less reproductive it becomes. This is just this has been the this has been the trend. Good news: many countries are becoming wealthier and wealthier. Bad news is they're shrinking. Israel is the only country that's becoming wealthier and wealthier. And people are having more and more kids. Now, when I tell people this, they say, oh, it's just the ultra-religious Jews. It's the Haredim. It's the ultra-religious Jews, which is true. They are having a lot of kids. But that's not why Israel is having this massive demographic growth. It's because the secular Jews in Israel are also having a lot of kids. I know friends of mine who work in Israeli television who have Netflix deals creating shows like Fauda for Israeli te- uh, for, for global streamers. I have friends who work in some of the biggest tech startups and venture capital firms. They live in chic, quasi-hedonistic, uh, very secular Tel Aviv, three, four, and five children. Uh, and um, and it's, toddlers it's, are welcome it's, it's, everywhere. It's, I learned that in The Genius of Israel. Oh, yeah. that, bring your kids to work. There's no such thing just- as, yeah, there's no such thing as date night. The fanciest, most chic restaurants in Israel, you'll see kids running all over the place. And it, by the way, Hugh, it creates a sense of when it's everywhere, you think you should have it too because it's so accepted. And also people bring their kids to work. It's not uncommon to bring little ones to work. Conan O'Brien did this fantastic special. He used to do these specials where he'd travel to countries and learn about different countries. So he goes to Israel and he wants to learn about the tech scene, the high tech scene. So he goes to Waze, the company Waze, which was founded in Israel. And he goes to Waze and he walks in and he sees all these little kids. He says, we, we cite it in the book. He says, what are all these children doing here? What are, what are you running, a child labor camp here? Like, because kids are just welcome everywhere. And when kids are everywhere, it makes you feel like kids are just part of the experience. It's not a distraction of your life. It's part of your life. It's not a burden. It's, it's, a, it's, it's flourish. It's, it's, it's welcomed. It's encouraged. It's, it's like um, Catholic mass, man. Has, if you you're not Catholic, but at mass, the kids who aren't in the cry room are screaming, and Catholics are used to it, and it's a good thing because you know the parish is growing, and and I right. think it makes you happier if you have kids at work and all that right. stuff going on. Now I want to go to the IDF because it's going to take a lot. The IDF requires 2.8 years out of every male, two years out of every female. The one thing I can't figure is every elite unit, every unit in the Israeli army appears to me to be elite, whether it's the pilots or the Golani, everybody's elite. But they're also very accepting of what you call the neurodivergent. People are on the on the spectrum. Mossad goes and gets them. That's an amazing chapter. People need to read about how the neurodivergent people high on the spectrum figure out problems that other people can't. Mossad wants that ability. So given this is the superpower problem. I thought the IDF had superpowers and I watch Fauda, right? So I know that Fauda has superpowers and, and I'm stunned and I'm a little bit taken aback that Hamas could surprise you. And does this cause yeah. doubt about the IDF in every Israeli? If Israel's response in <clears throat> correcting the errors of October 7th is not, is not, comprehensive and ambitious, then yes. Israel needs to send a message. The Israeli leadership needs to send a message to its own citizens and to the region because the re- in the region, Israel has a lot of friends uh, like the Abraham Accords countries. God willing, it has a lot of future friends like Saudi Arabia, and it has a lot of enemies like Iran. All of those countries believe that Israel, has believed that Israel is 
militarily strong, is an intelligence juggernaut, is economically strong, is geopolitically powerful. For Israel's friends and future friends, part of the reason they're opening, expanding relations and deepening ties with them is because they want to be part of that strength. And a big risk of October 7th is it sent a message to those friends and future friends, well, maybe Israel, at least on the military and intelligence side, isn't as strong as we thought. And so Israel needs to reassert that that projection of strength, not only for its own security, but to send a message to the world that they're still strong. People, there's this conventional wisdom. Some in the State Department believe this: that Israel's strongest when it when it's almost vulnerable. That 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 it needs to to shrink in its in its presence in the world and its presence in the region, and that that is how it will win friends over. That's nonsense. Israel has has expanded its diplomatic and economic ties and its strategic relationships when it has been strongest. And to me, one of the biggest risks of October 7th is it sent a message that it is not strong. I think it still is. We can get into, there's a bunch of reasons why I think October 7th happened, some of which we know, some of which we'll learn in the months ahead and the years ahead. But the most important thing Israel needs to do is reassert its competence and capabilities and strength in the military front. I think they have it. I think you're seeing it at work in Gaza right now. I think this military campaign in Gaza is exceeding my expectations and I think a lot of others in terms of how well it's going. God willing, it'll continue to go well. Uh, but um, I think this is extremely important, not only for the sake of, of, of restoring Israeli security, but for the message it sends to the world. And we got a minute to the break. Israel has to win. It has to keep going. And that's my opinion as a non-Jew, non-Israeli. Do you agree with me? They have no choice. They've got to win. Absolutely. Uh, they, what, what, what Hamas tried to do, and it, let's be honest, it wasn't just Hamas. It was Iran and maybe others uh, who played a role here. Um, Israel has had, with many in the region, a policy, including Hamas, of containment. We'll, learn, you know, we'll work with Hamas, not literally work with them directly, but kind of learn to live with Hamas. They'll be there. We'll be here. They, you know, will we'll have these skirmishes every couple of years, but, you know, won't break out into full out war. Even though Hamas has written into its charter the eradication of the Jewish people, it's, it's you know, com- compare the founding document of the state of Israel to the founding document of Hamas. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> the founding document of Hamas is not really about the Palestinian people. It's about destroying the Jewish people. That's their commitment. Now, many Israeli leaders didn't believe Hamas was actually serious about it. You mentioned earlier Hitler, the rise of Hitler, Mein Kampf. You know, when, when, when leaders say things, when they write these things, when they write books, books about these things, when they write these things into founding documents, take them seriously. Read okay? them, believe them. And so, and, and, right. and so Hamas had this written to its founding charter. And I think what tragically Israel learned on October 7th is they got to take them seriously. They mean it. They deployed a death cult into southern Israel on October 7th. When we come back, uh, during the break, I'm going to talk with the impact of 10-7 on the friendly Sunni countries. And then when we come back for the last segment, I'm going to ask him about what happens next in Israel politically. It's a crystal ball. You've got to read The Genius of Israel. I can't cover the entire book, and we've been doing this for an hour and a half. So go and get the book and listen to Dan's podcast. Call me back. I'll be right back. In this segment, Dan, and it's about five minutes, I want to ask you about the impact of 10-7 on the friendly Arab states. I have a friend. He's probably your friend as well, a a UAE diplomat in Washington, D.C. I don't want to name his name. I haven't talked to him yet. I wonder if they are not startled by the savagery of Hamas and whether they're rethinking calling off the Yemeni war, 
making peace with Qatar and whether or not they realize you can't do this is a death cult. We can never coexist with them. Is, have you thought about what the impact is on the rational Arab states yet? Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. Um, they so what they're basically telling, and I've heard this from both the the Sunni Gulf friends of mine in the Sunni Gulf who are dealing with the Biden administration. I've heard this from people in the Biden administration. Um, when Tony Blinken travels around to these capitals, the Doha dynamics is a little different, but let's just stay with Riyadh, Bahrain, UAE. Uh, in those countries, they basically say, look, Israel's got to wrap up this fighting some relatively soon, they tell Blinken, because the images are really bad. Again, we can get into whether or not they're really bad, but that's their argument that it's going to create restlessness on their streets, on the, on the Arab street of these countries. And these governments are nervous about the impact on them, on their, on their monarchies or their governments. And then they also say, they speak out of both sides of their mouth, and they also tell Blinken, but make sure Israel finishes off Hamas. They're going to finish off Hamas, right? Uh, they hate Hamas. I mean, and this has always been the case. In 2006, when Israel was fighting the second Lebanon war, you know, Condi, at the time, was now, uh, Secretary of State for President Bush. She would travel around to these Arab capitals, and they would say, you know, Israel's got to wrap things up and fighting Hezbollah in Lebanon. This can't go on forever, but not before they finish off Hezbollah. They got to finish off Hezbollah. So all these, all these governments, they hate Hezbollah. They hate Hamas. Hamas, as you know, is like a, a sister organization of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood has been a major threat to these Gulf states. So they want Hamas is a massive distraction. These countries, Hugh, you know, I met with, I mean, this has been reported publicly. I met with Mohammed bin Salman in, um, in, 2018, I think it was, uh, when he was traveling here to the U.S. And I asked him, I said, how do you view, you know, your, your warming relations with Israel? And he basically said some version of, I said, how is that vis-a-vis the Palestinians? And you guys are so committed to Palestinians. And he said some version of, and I'll never forget this, he said some version of, and people around him said some version of, look, we believe Israel is the future and the Palestinians are the past. We want to be with the future. Meaning if you're a modernizing country in the Arab world, you look at Israel and all the innovation and the economic growth and the flourishing and the dynamism. It's a Silicon Valley in their backyard. And they said one of one of the people around MBS said, you know, we, if we want to innovate, we got to fly to Silicon Valley. Why do we want to fly 15, 16 hours to Silicon Valley? We have a Silicon Valley right here. It's a three hour, two, three hour flight away. We want to be part of this. And they view the Palestinians as a drag. Now, they don't, and I'm not saying they view all Palestinians that way, but in terms of what Hamas represents, that's like taking, that's like taking the Arab Muslim world into the Stone Age, Hamas's vision. It's pre modern. It's, 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 it's really it's barbaric. Yeah. Yeah. I'm coming back one more segment with Dan Senor. Stay tuned to the podcast and come back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. My final segment with Dan Senor, his book, The Genius of Israel. You've got to read it. Dan, I know that 10-7 has changed American politics. I moderated a presidential debate last week, and we spent the half hour of the first hour talking about Israel and anti-Semitism. So I know that. That's a fact. I don't know what it's going to do to Israeli politics. I don't have an opinion on the Israeli Supreme Court. I don't know. It's not my country. I don't know what its judicial system is, and I don't like people telling me what ours should be. But you tell me what you think is going to happen in Israel after the war, which I think, I hope and pray is done within three months. It might take longer. But what do you think is going to happen in Israel after the war? 
Yeah, just on the timing, I think I think the major fighting will be done much sooner than that. I think Israel's oh, I making right. much more progress than even Israel thought. But obviously then there's this transition period where Israel will be in Gaza providing some security until the vacuum is filled with the future political leadership. That may take some time. Uh, I think – and obviously politics is is hard to predict anywhere in the world. But I, if you look at Israel's history after it's had a major security setback, the political leadership rarely survives. The Yom Kippur War, which we talked at the beginning of our conversation this morning uh, – basically ended Golda Meir's career and and basically ended the Labor Party, her Labor Party's leadership for a generation. Uh, after the 2006 Second Lebanon War, which was viewed as a, as a major setback and not run well, it ended Ehud Omer's career. And I will say that Israel has, after major wars, has these commissions of inquiry. They do something we don't do on a consistent basis. They have commissions of inquiry where they go very, very deep to really understand exactly what happened. Some of that commission of inquiries is captured in the Golda movie that I was mentioning, the Helen right. Mirren movie that I referenced earlier. They, they go deep. Uh, the, 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 the commission of inquiry, if you want to read a commission of inquiry, after this, the one after the Second Lebanon War, it is, it is deep. It goes deep. And Israel's going to have that after the October 7th war is complete. And I think it's going to be deeper than anyone imagined can imagine. It's going to be a whole other level of, of depth. And I sadly, as I know him, I know him personally, um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's been a he's been a friend on and off over many years. He's, um, I you know I, I see him with some regularity when I when I've gone to Israel over time. I I sadly tragically think um, he it's going to be extremely damaging for him, and I just don't see how he survives politically. Now he's a magician politically, and he can pull a rabbit out of the hat as he's been proven to do in the past. He's Israel's longest serving prime minister. Uh, but um, I just think the the lapses here were too great, and it's not going to be just him. Um, in fairness, this uh, while he was prime minister during most of the time that Gaza built up these capabilities under the nose of Israel, there were other prime ministers too. There was Naftali Bennett, there was Yair Lapid. Didn't serve. There was there was part of the Ehud Omer premiership. Uh, he was prime minister after once Hamas took over, so it wasn't just Netanyahu, but he was the longest serving prime minister during this time. And um, and I think so he'll he'll take a big hit. And I think other other leaders in the military and intelligence uh, spheres will take hits, too. But does it shift Israeli politics? Does it shift all of the politics to the right, to a security mindedness that has perhaps been allowed to lapse? There's no question. One thing that's striking to me, Hugh, is if you look at. The statements coming out of the political leaders in Israel, basically from left to right, they are all talking the same way. Now, that's not the way that's not to suggest they'll always be talking the same way. But in terms of the security mindedness and the sense that Israel really doesn't have an interlocutor among the Palestinians that it can deal with. And there's really no path anytime in the foreseeable future, even in the not foreseeable future for there to be a Palestinian state. That's over. I mean, the mindset is. Israel's had, as a, had a genocidal actor in the south, on its southern border. It has a genocidal actor enemy on its northern border, and it's got Iran. I think it's changed Israel's view on how to deal with Iran that's orchestrating all this pressure on Israel. Israel is being squeezed, and everyone in Israel understands that from left to right. And, and what they understand is deterrence is not re- possible if it's done through containment. There's not containing the threat. You have to eliminate the threat. It's just a matter of time. 
You have to eliminate the threat. That's why I don't think Hezbollah is long for this world. Even though they're not dealing with Hezbollah today or tomorrow or anytime in the near future, I don't think they're going to deal with Hezbollah because Hezbollah has 10 times the capabilities in terms of manpower, in terms of weapons that Hamas does or did. And Hezbollah has gotten real on the ground training in Syria, fighting the Syrian civil war over the last few years. Israel, the mindset in Israel across the political spectrum is that they can just no longer learn to live with these threats. And that it's, it's like left, right. It's like meaningless. It's the Israel. That's the Israeli consensus today. And last point, Iran cannot have a nuclear weapon, right? They can't. That means not a only, lot of different things, only, but they can't have one. That's right. Not only can they not have a nuclear weapon, I, I think there's a growing sense in Israel that Iran, the Iranian regime as we know it today, cannot remain intact and in power in, in Iran. Uh, Israel, again, like Hamas in Gaza, said, yes, we'll conduct operations, right? We'll, main, we'll have some kind of containment. We'll send in our operatives to kill their nuclear scientists. We'll conduct cyber operations like Stuxnet. Uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll, we'll conduct operations, but we're not going to mess – with the regime, will leave it intact. The regime, Hugh, is behind so much bad behavior towards Israel, and they have the support now of Russia and China. So China, that 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 Beijing, Moscow, Tehran triumvirate is a very scary dynamic for Israel, and I think they have to shake it up. I will look forward to you talking about that with Aviv and your other guests on Call Me Back. In the meantime, to understand what Israel is and where it's going and why it is, and I'm optimistic about it, go and get the genius of Israel. Dan Sinor, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for your, for your generosity. Thanks with so your much, time. and thanks for your interest in it. My pleasure. More and more people are turning to drugs to lose weight. I think that's a poor choice. I encourage them instead to go to myphdweightloss.com. Generalissimo uh, jumped on that program. My gosh, it's been well, over six, a year, year, uh, 16 months, months. months. Yeah. Yeah. 15 months. 15 12 months. and three is 15 months. So you started, what were you weighing when you started? Uh, I was about, I was rocking about 250 almost. That's a big Dwayne. That was, I was, I was, there, there was, there was plenty of me going around. Yeah. There's a lot of Dwayne then. There was a lot of Dwayne to be had, yes. There was a lot of Dwayne then, and and your wonderful wife took you in anyway, and now she's looking around for a third of Dwayne that's missing. Uh, she likes the two-thirds of Dwayne that's remaining, though. Yeah, but you lost that weight the healthy, responsible way with MyPhDWeightLoss.com, 864-644-1900. That's 864-644-1900. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by Ambassador Michael Oren. Dr. Oren was the Israeli ambassador to the United States for many years. He is in the United States right now, raising money for United Hot Zala. Yesterday, Dr. Oren, after our conversation, the fetching Mr. Hewitt and I sent a thousand bucks to United Hot Zala because if you can do this work, if you can go out there and do this work, people who are listening to this show have to support you. Would you tell them again about United Hot Zala, about which I had not heard until yesterday? Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. Uh, greetings from uh, Philadelphia today en route to Detroit, Cleveland, and Boston, uh, whatever day this is. Um, United Hatzala is the most extraordinary organization I know. It's, it's over 7,000 paramedical volunteers who you know have a little beeper. They get a beep. They leave whatever they're doing at any hour of the day, any day of the week. Many of them have ambulocycles. These are, these are motorcycles that act, does everything an ambulance does except take you to the hospital, they can get you in a city within 90 seconds. 
Uh, if you're out in the countryside, they can get you within three minutes. They save literally thousands of lives. But during this crisis on October 7th, they were the first on the scene. I was with a young paramedic last night, Yuval, here in, in Philadelphia, who was really within two hours of the attack on the scene, uh, saw things that nobody ever wants to ever experience, but saved many, many lives with his own hand. Under fire, by the way. Uh, two of these volunteers were killed. Two were taken hostage, many wounded. And um, and by the way, it's Arabs and Jews. Um, Arabs are joining in great numbers. Um, it, it's quite an extraordinary uh, organization. And by the way, it's all free. You don't pay a cent for it. Uh, so our our stores were 90% depleted, uh, just basic bandages, tourniquets, everything. So what I feel, you know, hey, <laughs> I don't know what day it is. I'm not quite sure what city it is, but um, – to do this for these for these wonderful people who have saving lives, every dollar contributed to that cellar saves a life. And that's just the bottom line of it. Well, I'm, we were glad to contribute, particularly because it's you and I trust you. We have a high trust relationship with Dr. Oren, and I believe the audience can. Now, Michael, uh, I want to ask you about the reports of a hostage deal. I don't believe anything until an Israeli official tells me. What are you approaching these reports? What's your attitude towards them? Well, again, same thing. You know, the, the, you know, the scuttlebutt. The scuttlebutt has 50 to 100 uh, uh, hostages, women, children, sick people, and return for three to five days ceasefire. And uh, I, I have two problems with it. I mean, one is um, every day of a ceasefire costs us in terms of soldier lives. It may save a hostage life. It's going to cost us a soldier's life. Because Hamas is going to use it to reorganize, you know, you know, uh, you know supply up on ammunition, everything. Uh, move troops around in better ways, move uh, terrorists around. There's also the question of, okay, who gets out and who stays in? And that creates a huge problem domestically within Israel. You know, imagine if, you know, you have a loved one that's in, doesn't get out, but your neighbor has a loved one who's a hostage and does get out. That creates a, a, a real imbalance. You can say, okay, women and children, sick people, but then, you know, what constitutes a child? What constitutes a sick person? Um, it's going to get dicey. But let's leave it aside and then no. Um, can I talk a little bit about uh, the president's press conference last night? Because I was on um, Anderson. Please. I was on Anderson Cooper live doing it, and um, I think I said something that I want. I want your listeners to hear. Now, if you noticed, you know, here it was a an historic meeting, a very important meeting between the head of the two greatest superpowers in the world. And when it came to answering questions from the press corps, I would say about seventy percent of the questions were about not about China, not about the United States, not about fentanyl, uh, but about Gaza. And the questions from the mainstream press were overwhelmingly hostile to Israel, of course, by implication. When is the United States going to put its foot down and stop the massacre of thousands of Palestinians? When is the United States going to put its foot down and stop the, the desecration, destruction of Palestinian hospitals, et cetera? I don't know if you're watching this, Hugh. Um, and I got to say, I came my turn to speak and, and, and uh, I was quite, you know, I was taken aback. You know, you say you're, you're shocked, but not, not surprised by any of these questions. But uh, Joe, Joe really handled himself very, very well. He didn't give a, he didn't give an inch. He didn't give a, he didn't give a fraction of an inch. He says Israel has the right to defend itself. Israel's going to keep going until, until Hamas can no longer murder Israelis. They're using these hospitals as uh, Thomas is using these hospitals as, as headquarters. I mean, basically, didn't give an inch. And when it came my time to, to turn to talk, I think I said something I've been dying to say for a long time. I waited for this opportunity. This is what I said. People have been saying for weeks now. And you have these petitions that are being submitted from ex-State Department people and staffers on the, on the, on the Hill saying uh, the administration's position in supporting Israel is hurting America internationally. It's weakening in America in the Middle East. It's weakening in America, you know, in every place you could possibly weaken. It is just, just the opposite. 
the world is watching to see whether the United States stands by its allies. The world is watching to see if the United States is, after years of isolationism, is willing to project power. Uh, the Chinese are watching. They're seeing whether Israel, the United States stands by Israel and the United States is willing to use those aircraft carriers. And they're drawing conclusions about, about Taiwan. I think the Russians are going to draw conclusions about Ukraine, too. This is an historic moment. And, um, you know, yet again, the politics. But this guy stood really, really strong last night. And, uh, and that's the message that has to go out. America is back. America is willing to, you know, to stand by its allies and all these other bad actors who better take notice. I'm glad he did that. I applaud the president when he does something well. I, I don't applaud him when he th- says crazy stuff in the Oval or Jake Sullivan says stuff. Don't go anywhere, Michael. I want to take three extra minutes for you that I'll play on the podcast about Justin Please. Trudeau. Because I made the mistake of, of reading about Justin Trudeau right before I tried to go to sleep last night. And I was so angry that it took me a while to get to sleep. So I'm going to ask Michael Oren about that. Dan Senor is coming up next hour. Remember, IsraelRescue.org to support United Hatzalah. If Michael Oren can travel day after day on behalf of United Hatzalah, you can give $10, $100, Go to uh, IsraelRescue.org and be generous. I'll be right back. More Michael Oren on the podcast later today. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is a special tail end of my special podcast today. Dr. Oren, former ambassador of Israel to the United States, former deputy minister. Dr. Oren, Justin Trudeau yesterday assailed Israel again. And in this, he mimics other people. Is he ignorant or is he evil? Because I really don't understand how the Canadians are stuck with this guy. He's he's an invertebrate. (laughs) vertebrae. I don't think he's honestly, sometimes I was just up in Toronto uh, talking to the community there. I spoke to about 1200 supporters of Israel in Toronto. Uh, Their general feeling is that, you know, he's the, his, their feeling and not mine is that he's not the brightest bulb on the tree and he doesn't have a backbone. And that's what I think. And it's going to go with the wind. And um, I've had some interaction with him. Um, and this community, I, 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 I uh, correspond with John Baird. Do you remember John? No, John was the uh, he was a foreign minister of uh, of of Canada under the uh, you know the very pro Israel government and uh, and you know he's, he's these people are distraught and the Israel pro Israel community in Canada, which is a very big community, uh, is distraught by this. Uh, well, what I do not understand is when world leaders step up and ignore the reality of how the IDF is conducting this war which is according to the laws of armed conflict and probably plus some. They're being so careful at Shifa Hospital and everywhere else. And then you get just a moron come out like Justin Trudeau and and Macron and say you're killing women and children. And I just think they're ignorant. Do they not have advisors? Do they not learn these things? They Listen, Macron at least walked it back a bit. And it's interesting that you don't get about Biden last night. Biden said, um, you know, Israel's losing soldiers. He said this to the press, but he was losing soldiers because of the caution, the cautionary steps it's taken to prevent, to limit Palestinian casualties. He said, he's at the following line. I, I, you have to get a look at the text. He says, if, if this was us, we would have done much, much worse. <laughs> it's very funny. And it's so true. It's so true. America would have smashed them. Um, no, these guys, are, these guys are not just invertebrates. They're afraid. They're afraid. And they haven't internalized that if we lose, they're next. And they have large populations that are supportive of Hamas, not just ideologically, but theologically. And uh, and Canada is the same and uh, almost similar percentage points in Canada's versus France. And so, Michael, I, 
I'm going to ask Dan Senor this question. I want you to have the first bite at the apple. Holocaust is a terrible thing. Nine million Jews in Europe before the Holocaust, 1.5 million afterwards, left in the camp between a quarter million and 300,000 survivors. This is, but it served as a sort of pyrophlactic plant, uh, the, the sort of plant that only grows after a terrible fire. Is that going to have the same impact on Israel as the first Holocaust did, that 10-7 is going to burn away a lot of people and injure a lot of people, but Israel be resilient and grow back stronger? So, I think about that question a lot. It's so funny that you should answer that question this morning. I was thinking about it just last night. And I was asked that question by the group in Philadelphia, very similar question. I said, keep in mind that the state of Israel was founded in May 1940. It's exactly three years, almost to the date after VE Day, after the end of the Holocaust. So here you have a people that has just lost one out of every three of its members in the Holocaust and turns around and creates an independent state um, in its ancient homeland uh, with nothing, with no, no, no resources, no allies, enough bullets to fight for one week. And they're invaded by by six Arab armies, and look what we created. So we are, we are the world's most resilient people. We've been around for 4,000 years for, you know, for a good reason. And we overcome expulsions and, 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 and oppression on an extraordinary level. But we're going to come back from this even stronger. I'm actually convinced of that. I know that we're going to come back stronger. It is excruciatingly painful. I mean, yesterday uh, you had me on, and uh, what did I? I broke out crying because I just learned about this young woman, Noah Marciano, who had been killed, and I had spent time with her mother. Um, it's personally excruciating. But... We're going to come back stronger, much stronger. And, it, you know, the, the horrible irony of this is uh, it took Hamas to remind us that we are one people, that we are a nation, that we are a family. It's taking, hopefully, Hamas to remind the clear-sighted leaders of the world, people who have moral clarity, and Justin Trudeau does not join that, and is not in that group, who can actually see that this is a battle between civilization and evil and darkness, and, and will stand up for that civilization. Um, I can't Dr. Oren, safe travels to you, to my home region in Cleveland and wherever else you're going, because you're the Iron Man when it comes to doing these missions. And remember, IsraelRescue.org, IsraelRescue.org. Talk to you soon, Dr. Oren. Thank you for spending extra time with me today. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.